With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show. It's on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 179. And it's titled, Free Markets and the Great Famine. I planned on doing an episode on the economic impact of illegal immigration. But I got distracted. My ancestors came over in the 19th century from the Netherlands, Germany, and Ireland. And the question occurred to me, were they... Illegal immigrants? Well, I did some searching and I found this quote from May Nagai. She's a legal and political historian whose studies focus on immigration. It was an article from the Boston Globe and she writes, People are shocked when I say before World War I, there were no green cards, no visas, no quotas, no passports even. Really, you just showed up. And if you could walk without a limp and you had $30 in your pocket, you walked right in. So there was no concept of illegal immigration when when my ancestors came. But about this time I was doing the research, there was an article in the New York Times. It was called The Lost Children of, and I pronounced it Tuam, T-U-A-M. But the article says it's pronounced Chum, C-H-E-W-M, and I have no idea why. But the name, Tuam, I recognized it because one of my ancestors, Cecilia Nestor, who goes by Sarah, was born there in 1835. This is a parish and town in Ireland. The article was about the St. Mary's mother in baby home, which was housed in the early 20th century, 50 single mothers and about 125 children born out of wedlock. And the article mentioned the building was opened in 1846 as a workhouse. And I didn't know what a workhouse was, and and we'll find out in this episode. And the article went on to say, so it it was opened in 1846, and almost immediately it began receiving victims of the Great Hunger, a famine so horrific that the moans of the dying, the Chum Herald reported, were as familiar to our ears as the striking of a clock. So my ancestor was born in 1835. She emigrated to the U.S. in 1850. This is Sarah Nestor. And she died in 1925 in Lewisburg, Kentucky, just south of Maysville. So she left Ireland in the midst of this great famine, this great hunger. And she married a an, a gentleman named Patrick O'Laughlin. They got married in Cincinnati in 1856. 
He was from Western Ireland, Ireland, the county of Mayo, which was not terribly advanced. Very, very little roads in Mayo County at that time. And we'll learn some challenges with that. But this great hunger, the great famine, estimates are between 1 million and 2 million people died from starvation, digestive diseases, and infectious diseases related to this famine. The census in Ireland in 1841 showed 8.2 million. In 1851, the official census indicated 6.6 million, so a drop of over a million and a half. So you'd certainly had births, but you had so many people dying, and you had many leaving, really fleeing the country. By 1911, there were only 4.4 million individuals in Ireland. The cause of this famine was a lack of diversity in the crops. The poor primarily depended on the potato for their daily sustenance. They planted a particularly large potato, very nutritious, not necessarily the tastiest, but it was called the lumper. And that's what most of those, particularly the poor in Ireland, that's what they farmed. They would farm, they would plant it in what were called lazy beds. They were kind of narrow ridges, four feet wide, and they would drop the seed behind a spade, and, and the poorest would actually plant these potatoes by hand. And at times there, there were crop losses, but they tended to be localized to one particular area of Ireland. But not the potato blight. This was a, a disease that they estimate originated in Toluca Valley, Mexico, and then inflicted the potato crops in the U.S. And at that point, some of those potatoes, potentially diseased, were put in ships and taken over to really to feed passengers as they would go over to Europe. And so by 1844, this potato blight had hit Ireland completely decimated the crops in 1845, 1846, 1847. And this is what the peasants relied on. Really difficult lives. They lived in mud cabins covered in straw. These these cabins lacked windows. The ventilation only came from a single door or perhaps a hole in the roof where smoke escaped. If they had furniture, they might have had a bed, sometimes a chair, and and for the lucky few, a table. The occupants would usually sleep together in the clothes they wore during the day, often on an earthen floor for warmth. Now, one of the other challenges with Ireland is overpopulation. Between 1741 the date of the last big famine, huge famine in Ireland, in 1845, the population tripled in Ireland. And the for dowries, the, the, the men for their daughters would divide up their acreage. And so you, you had a huge increase in population. 
and more and more in smaller, smaller plots of land. On the eve of the famine, there were 135,000 plots, less than an acre in size. And of the remaining 750,000 holdings in Ireland, half were less than 10 acres and 25% between 10 and 20 acres. So you had smaller and smaller pieces of ground being planted with potatoes, which was the main sustenance, and then they got hit by this blight. Even in a good year, the, the Irish struggled. For three months of the year, they were hungry. Often, the previous year's potato supply ran out by March or mid-April, and they were hungry until July. There's a saying in Ireland that potatoes planted for patty, St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, came up for Billy, which is a feast of Williams of Orange in July 12th. Much of the information for this episode came from a fascinating book by Tim Pat Coogan. He's a historian, and the book is The Famine Plot, England's Role in Ireland's Greatest Tragedy. Now, in the book, and I mention that the county Mayo, where Patrick O'Loughlin lived, had very few roads. Coogan writes, access to clusters of swarming mud cabins meant negotiating reeking mounds of animal vegetable, and human waste girding the cabins. Despite the poverty, the Irish had really strong physiques. Coogan points out that Wellington's army, the general, during the Napoleonic Wars, one-third of those that participated in that came from Ireland. Now, the division of the land, there were landlords, about 10,000 landlords in Ireland. Many, if not most, were absentee landlords. And these landlords were really leveraged up tremendously. Many of them lived in Dublin or lived in London. So they had agents that would take care of their estates. And then they had all of these peasants that lived in these huts on these estates. And then the peasants would pay rent to the landlord, to or the, it's his, his agent, to be able to grow potatoes. Ireland was mostly Catholic, but England was Protestant. And, and there was some discrimination of, of those Catholic Irish by certainly those that were Protestant, but they, they were just sort of looked down upon. These were poor, poor people. Coogan writes, the land of Ireland was dangerously overburdened by the weight of human stock. What was needed to avert an inevitable human disaster was a humane system of human emigration in combination with a sustained effort at reforming the land system, developing fisheries and building Irish infrastructure, such as roads, bridges, harbors, and canals. This was very, very rural and not developed at all. And so you just essentially you had paupers, peasants, growing potatoes, hungry three months out of the year, without good roads or infrastructure, nothing like what was occurring in England 
where industrialization was taking hold. And sure, you had tremendous urban poverty, and you had an aristocracy that was under a lot of pressure to help the poor in England, but you had capitalism taking hold and advancement taking place, but not in Ireland. Ireland was sort of put on the back burner. It was just backwater with very, very poor people. The predominant economic philosophy at this time was something called laissez-faire, and it was a doctrine of non-interference with trade, free trade, and, and nothing should interfere. And the, and the overriding feeling was poverty was a self-inflicted wound. And there was a, an ongoing debate, and it's so similar to what we face today. Should we help the poor? Would that discourage their initiative and, and discourage them from helping themselves? Was this poverty a self-inflicted wound? And if not, often there was thought, well, that was providence. That was God's will that those people should be poor. Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations, which was a, it sort of swept, I mean, that's what the politicians read. He wrote in that book, the natural effort of every individual to better his own condition when suffered to extend itself with freedom and security is so powerful that it alone and without any assistance is not only capable of carrying on society to wealth and prosperity, but of surmounting a hundred impertinent obstructions with which the folly of human laws too often encumbers its operation. The idea that the free market would naturally take care of poverty. But what if there isn't any infrastructure? What if there isn't anyone making investments? What if it's just absentee landlords collecting rent and living the high life in London or Dublin? Jeremy Bentham wrote, laissez-faire, in short, should be the general practice. Every departure, unless required, by some great good, is a certain evil. Shouldn't help the poor. That's not a great good that deserves a, a departure from, the, from letting the market forces take shape. Thomas Mathis was also a, a writer about this time in his 1798 book was called An Essay on the Principle of Population. And he believed that as a nation's food production improves, that that helps the well-being of the populace. But it's only temporary because then, because then you have population growth, which means that you have too many people, and then that wealth that was created from the, the, the higher productivity gets dissipated, and the standard of living doesn't increase. Malthus wrote, the land of Ireland is infinitely more people than in England, and to give a full effect to the natural resources of the country, a great part of the population 
should be swept from the soil. The idea that this land was overpopulated and, and the people, that it, the market would mean people would leave or they would die if we didn't help them. And some thought that was providence. That was the way it should be. Irishman Edwin Edmund Burke wrote, it is not by breaking the laws of commerce, which are the laws of nature and consequently the laws of God, that we are to place our hope of softening the divine displeasure to remove any calamity under which we suffer. It's God's will. We shouldn't alter the laws of commerce to, to help. That was the belief among some, but not all. Let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com David. That's linkedin.com David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average and automated investing technology like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, Cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. In 1833, a royal commission was set up to figure out how severe is this problem of poverty in Ireland. They interviewed 1,500 people. They took three years, and they determined that 2.5 million people in Ireland needed assistance for several months each year. As their potato harvest from the previous year ran out, they didn't have any food. In 1838, the Irish Poor Law was implemented, and the country was divided into 130 administrative units called unions. 
and each would open up one or more workhouses. These were supposed to be self-sustaining. Again, think about the frame of reference, that poverty is self-afflicted, that we should let the market take its course, that often it was God's will or providence. So these things were set up so that the landlords were taxed to support the workhouses, where the poor could go if they didn't have any other resources. But they were only set up to serve about 100,000 people, and the need was two and a half million. Coogan writes, it was laid down that life inside the workhouses be made as unpleasant as possible, and the work provided to be as irksome as possible, so as to encourage paupers to speedily quit the workhouse. The guiding philosophy of the poor law was that poverty was the fault of the individual and that people should be discouraged from entering workhouses, not encouraged to do so. But they were insufficient. There wasn't enough work. A lot of the absentee landlords didn't pay, didn't contribute. So those resident landlords, they suffered or had to pay more of the burden. A lot of the workhouses went bankrupt. A parish priest in Balagadarine wrote, the awful scenes I have this day to communicate are heartrending. Two persons have died today from starvation. One of them declared a few hours before his death that he had not eaten a full meal for 12 days previously. I had over 200 persons at this my house today crying out for work or food. Their patience is great considering their wants. Their appearance is frightful. If the board of works does not provide work, in other words, the workhouse, we will have to record dozens of deaths of the people. And the workhouses became overcrowded. The one in Skibbereen, designed to accommodate 800 people. At its peak in March 1848, there were 2,500. The Limerick Chronicle wrote, money and credit are all gone and starvation has literally set in among the paupers in the workhouse. The inmates have been set set to bed on Thursday night without having eaten any dinner. The only remedy that the guardians could suggest to numb the sense of hunger. And in the midst of this, Ireland was actually exporting food, grain and beef to the UK. But the belief is laissez-faire, don't interfere. Sir Charles Trevelyan, he was the assistant secretary to the treasury and effectively placed in charge of the Ireland relief effort. He wrote, do not encourage the idea of prohibiting exports. Perfect free trade is the right course. The economist Cormac O'Grada estimates 430,000 tons of grain was exported just in 1846 to 1847, sent out of the country. Well, there was a shortfall of 20 million tons of potatoes due to crop failures. By 1800, Irish economy was supplying British cities with 53% of its beef, 79% of its butter, and 86% of its pork. But these were bigger estates. Most of the Irish population was just on small acreage eating potatoes. 
Now, the English government did provide some relief in the term, in the terms of Indian corn or hominy grits. This was really, really hard corn. And if it wasn't treated right, it was indigestible. If you didn't grind it up, just tried boiling it, it was so sharp it could cause intestinal damage, especially in children. And to really treat it, you had to grind it twice to be able to get it into a fine powder so that the poor could digest it. But here's, again, Trevelyan. We must not aim at giving more than wholesome food. I cannot believe it would be necessary to grind the Indian corn twice. Dependence on charity is not to be made an agreeable mode of life. Can't get too dependent. Can't actually make the corn so you could digest it. And then there's the whole idea, how do you distribute this food relief? Sir Randolph Ruth, he was the chair of the Irish Relief Commission. I mentioned Mayo County, hardly any roads, so they decided to distribute it via ships. But there were hardly any harbors in Western Ireland, even though the fishing could have been amazing. Here's what he says, Ruth, it is annoying that all these harbors are insignificant. It shows Providence never intended Ireland to be a great nation because they didn't have harbors because nobody invested in harbors. And then because the crops failed, the peasants couldn't pay rent. And what did many of the landlords do? They evicted them. They sent them off. And because their taxation was based, the landlords on how many houses, they'd send them off and then they would tear and burn their houses down. One group that did a great deal to help the poor was the Quakers, and they opened up soup kitchens. But they, they found that a struggle. The, Coogan writes, the business-oriented Quakers found it hard to adjust to a society in which most of the people who needed assistance had no knowledge of business and subsisted by growing their own food on an economy based on barter than the cash register. There was no middle class. The clergy and the landlords were the leader of society, and implementing change was hard. The Quakers did their best, and an almost superhuman best at times. Apart from distributing food and clothing, they also attempted imaginative schemes to improve farming, fishing, and general self-sufficiency. So you had soup kitchens. You had these feeding operations, but by October 1847, Trevelyan said the time had come to try what independent exertion will do, that the multitude was again gradually and peaceably thrown on its own resources when new and abundant supplies of food become available and the demand for labor was at its highest amount. In other words, Trevelyan cut off the supply of Indian corn. He shut down the soup kitchens because now was time for the market economy to take hold. So people didn't become too dependent. Yet the, the potato crop had failed in 1847. Sir Anthony Kennedy, he was a poor law inspector. He witnessed the destruction of a thousand cabins in three months as the people were evicted. He wrote, the wretched, helpless, and homeless wander the countryside, scattering disease, 
destitution and dismay in all direction. The most awful cases of destitution and suffering ever seen. When the houses are torn down, people live in banks and ditches like animals until starvation or whether drive them to the workhouse. Three cartloads who could not walk were brought in yesterday. Yet the workhouses were overcrowded and there was no food there either. Pat Coogan writes, Enough has been said about the role of the Irish landlords to make it clear that a proportion of the guilt and a high one at that has to be laid at their door. The fact that they were evicting these Irishmen and families and children from their estates because they were behind in their rents because the crops had failed. Cougar writes, but an even higher segment of blame has to be apportioned to the British government, which had both the power of initiative and the resources to greatly alleviate the suffering caused by the potato failure and did not do so. Why didn't they help? Well, they didn't want to interfere with the market economy. They didn't want to discourage initiative. If the poor were poor because of their own fault, it was a self-inflicted wound or it was providence, then who are they to interfere? Besides, this was Ireland's problem and the landlords should be the ones taking care of it. Trevelyan wrote, the principle of the poor law, as you well know, is that the rate after rate should be levied for the purpose of preserving life until the landlord and farmer either enable the people to support themselves by honest industry or dispose of their estate to those who can perform this indispensable duty. The landlords can't make it and can't care for the poor, then they should give up their estates. And basically, let the people either leave or starve so that more land would be freed up for cattle, which is more profitable that could supply beef. But here's here's one landlord, Colonel George Von Jackson. He was in Mayo. He says, no men are more ill-fated or greater victims than we resident proprietors. We are consumed by the hives of humans that exist on the properties of the absentees. On my right and my left are properties such as I allude to. I'm overwhelmed and ruined by them. These proprietors will do nothing. All the burden of relief and employment falls on me. The absentee landlords were in Dublin and London living the high life. They did not help the poor. And they didn't contribute to the workhouse. Instead, they sent agents to try to collect rents, and then they would evict those. And that left those resident landlords having to shoulder most of the burden. Lord Sligo, he had an estate. He was bringing in 7,200 pounds a year, and but paying out 6,000 pounds a year, mostly on debts that he had inherited. He didn't receive any rents from those that were on his estate for three years and managed to keep the the workhouse in his area open for the destitute at his own expense, cutting his own expenses, including the unheard of of not even keeping a carriage. So there were there were good people trying to help out. 
But they, these landlords are also under pressure. Those that stayed, Lord Montego wrote October 8th, 1848, that he was under the necessity of ejecting or being ejected, ejected because of his debts. Everybody was pointing fingers. The British government says that landlords hadn't done enough. It was said they've done nothing but sit down and howl for English money. And, and at some time, there were cases where the Irish peasants rebelled and killed, in select cases, killed the landlord. But the Prime Minister, Lord John Russell, wrote, I am not ready to bring in any restrictive law without, at the same time, restraining the power of the landlord. It is quite true that landlords in England would not be shot like hares and partridges, but neither does a landlord in England turn out 50 persons at once and burn their houses overhead, giving them no provision for the future. Trevelyan on July 19th, 1848 wrote, the matter is awfully serious, but we are in the hands of providence with no possibility of averting the catastrophe. If it is to happen, we can only await the result. It's out of the British government's hands. It's a responsibility of the landlords. Most many which weren't even there and just let their agents take care of it and evict the people. Coogan writes, the objective sought and achieved at the end was an ending of overpopulation of Irish land, their introduction of efficient farming methods and an abundant supply of cheap agricultural products on the imperial power's doorstep rather than drain on the exchequer. British government, other than sending some of the Indian corn, washed their hands of the situation, left the landlords to deal with it, and at the end, people died or they left. The landlords realized it was cheaper to send the people away on ships to Canada and the U.S. than to support them at the workhouse. Sir Charles Trevelyan wrote, I do not know how farms are to be consolidated if small farmers do not emigrate. By acting for the purpose of keeping them at home, we should be defeating our own subject. We must not complain of what we really of what we really want to obtain. If small farmers go and then the landlords are induced to sell portions of their estates to persons who invest capital, we shall at last arrive at something like a satisfactory settlement of the country. So the landlords sent the people off, but many sent them off in just awful, awful conditions. Didn't provide them food for the journey. Not very little clothes. They'd show up on the Canadian shores without any type of winter clothes. Many people died on the ships. They were called coffin ships, overcrowded, disease. The Dr. Griscom of the public health medicine and looking at a ship that arrived in Ellis Island wrote, emaciated, half-nude figures, many with petechial eruptions still disfiguring their faces, crouching in their berths. 
Some were just rising from their berths for the first time since leaving Liverpool, having been suffered to lie there all the voyage, wallowing in their own filth. That particular ship, there were 115 cases of typhus. The New York Tribune wrote, It is really lamentable to see the vast number of unfortunate creatures that are almost daily cast on our shores, penniless and without physical energy to earn a day's living. Yesterday, groups of these hapless beings were to be seen congregated about the city hall on Park and in Broadway, looking the very picture of despair, misery, disease, and want. On inquiry, we ascertained that they had arrived here by the ship of Sir Robert Peel, and that they had been, for the most part, tenants of the Marquis of Lansdowne on his County Cary estate, ejected without mercy by him and shipped for America in this wholesale way. Among them were gray-haired and aged men and women who had spent the heyday of their life as tillers of their native soil and now are sent to this country to find a grave. This is too bad. It is inhuman. And yet, it is an act of indiscriminate and wholesale expatriation committed by the liberal president of the Council of Her Majesty Queen Victoria Liberal Ministry. It got to the point that New York wouldn't take entry and they they would charge money, $10 per passenger. And if they didn't have the money, they'd send them to Canada. Boston levied $1,200 on every aged or infirm persons. Ships that had fever board were refused landing rights, and that meant passengers who had suffered across the sea were often driven away, and there were riots as they tried to break through and get on the land, but they were, they were forcibly constrained to stay, stay on the ship, and then they would go to Canada. But then the Irish would come down, and they would cross the border from Canada into the U.S., and there was a lot, a lot of discrimination against the Irish. They had nothing. They were poor and sent here with nothing. Those were the conditions and the situation that my ancestors, Patrick O'Loughlin and Sarah Nestor, faced as they emigrated in the late 1840s, early or 1950. My grandmother's Alice Walton. Her mother is Bridget Delia O'Laughlin, and her father is John Walton. They, Bridget and John, were this was the daughter and son of these Irish immigrants that had been forced to flee. They were the first generation to come here. They met and got married in 1902. They had settled in Maysville, Kentucky. Mayslick, actually, just south of there. In the November 2nd, 1902, Maysville Evening Bulletin, there's a wedding announcement. It says, the groom, John Walton, is a member of Schroeder Walton Harness Manufacturing Company and is one of the city's upright and industrious young businessmen. His bride is a very pretty and most estimable young lady. Mr. and Mrs. Walton are popular in their circle, and their many friends extend congratulations 
and since wishes for a happy wedded life. They left for a trip to Louisville. 50 years later, first generation gets married. Their parents had suffered tremendously in the great hunger. John Walton, Bridget Delia, or Bridget Delia, they, they had a tough life. They bought a dairy farm in Ohio in 1910 across the river from Maysville. The river froze. They couldn't deliver the milk. It spoiled and they lost their business. John worked at a distillery for a while in Frankfort, Kentucky, leaving every week to go and then coming back on the weekends. He bought a tobacco farm, which didn't do so well, and then moved his family of six kids to Cincinnati. And around 1918, he joined Procter & Gamble, where he worked for 25 years. One of their first homes was a six-room house he bought. It was a row house. My Aunt Marge, my grandmother's sister, wrote that it had no electric, no water, no furnace, dirt floor and basement, no stationary tubs, outside John, a two-holer. There was one, this was one of a row of houses, ten and all. We were in the middle. You could put your ear to the wall and hear what your neighbors were fighting about. I saw mom do that a lot. That was some of her pastime. Mother fought bedbugs for months and cat odors from the previous owners. My brother, Albin, hated that place. That's where my grandmother lived. And I'm just a couple generations, a few generations away from this Irish hunger and famine, this forced emigration and poverty. And boy, do I feel blessed. And that's the sensitivity I take when we discuss in a few weeks illegal immigration, where I saw similar poverty in Mexico and people coming here most illegally to find work. And we're going to look at the economic consequences of illegal immigration. But that, for now, is episode 179, a little longer episode than normal. Show notes are at moneyfortherestofus.com. That's also where you can sign up from my free insider's guide, and I'll email those show notes to you weekly along with a weekly essay, some of the best writing I do that I don't publish anywhere else. So that's at moneyfortherestofus.com. Or if you're a U.S.-based listener, just text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. Just a reminder, everything I've shared with you in this episode is for general education. I've not considered your specific financial situation, nor do I provide investment advice. Just general education on money investing the economy. Have a great week.